Hello, everyone, and welcome to Small Talk, a podcast for nurses by nurses, sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator at Boston Children's Hospital. I am Denise Downey, one of the nursing professional development specialists from the ER here at Children's. I've been a nurse for about 28 years or so, and next to me is my co-host, Hi, I'm Teresa Shannon. I'm one of the nurse educators from the inpatient medical unit at Boston Children's Hospital. I've worked in the field of pediatrics for about 30 years now. Hi, I'm Kathy Kiley, and I am a Boston Children's lifer. I've been here since 1988. I am currently a staff nurse three and the interim clinical coordinator for behavioral health in the emergency department, and I'm also a clinical educator. Hi, I'm Doug Crook. I am a registered nurse. I'm a clinical coordinator of the behavioral response team here at Boston Children's Hospital. I have been a nurse for 10 years now. Uh, Before that, I was uh, a milieu counselor on a locked psychiatric unit. Uh, So I've been working in the field of psychiatry for 18 years now. This is a wonderful topic, I think very timely, uh, knowing that a lot of our patients in the ER as well as throughout the house are here for behavioral health reasons. So we have the experts with us here at the table today, and we're gonna talk about a few things that really are concerns for nurses. So hopefully our listeners will get some useful answers that they can help uh, take care of their patients. So to start, Doug, what I was really curious about is that we always talk about behavioral health. What really is behavioral health or what is behavioral healthy? What does that mean? Uh, so I, I think of, and from what I've read, I think of behavioral health as being um, kind of all-encompassing um, versus we often hear about um, mental health or uh, psychiatry, psychiatric needs, uh, mental illness even. Um, and I, I think behavioral health has been used um, more recently uh, to to capture kind of everything, you know, so it's not... Uh, like mental health is really just focused on your uh, psychological health, uh, where behavioral health is um, uh, anything that includes mental health, but also includes uh, kind of the substance abuse um, population, um, includes patients with you know developmental delay and autism. Uh, also, you know a little bit about it includes a little bit about one's behaviors uh, and what they're doing to kind of take care of their themselves and uh, how they're keeping themselves healthy. So when patients come into the ER, we really are concerned about their safety. So what is it about their behavioral health that kind of goes wrong that puts these patients at risk when they come into the ER? That's a good question. Um, they're coming to the emergency department often or most often the patients are in acute crisis uh, and it could be a variety of things going on Um, you know usually there's some uh, trigger for what has prompted the behavior bringing them into the emergency department Uh, so it could be you know difficulties at home um, you know the home structure uh, relationship with their family uh, that gets the patient uh, feeling Um, agitated or suicidal Um, school is certainly uh, a big big trigger um, for kids um, for everyone uh, certainly no matter what their age is Um, 
so th there are there's a, there's a variety of reasons that can uh, kind of throw the the patients off their course and mm -hmm. uh, cause behavior that brings them into the hospital. And it seems like in the ER we're seeing more patients than ever before compared to recent years. Any thoughts on why that could be? I have my thoughts. <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, definitely, definitely increasing. Just even in the last five years, we're, we're seeing more kids coming in in crisis. We are, um, seeing them come in for, uh, acuity is higher. They're coming in for all different reasons. Um, I, you know, I, I really don't know. Um, you know, I think society, I look at you know, the environmental factors. Society is much different, I think, than it was. Uh, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, probably. Um, I think a lot about technology uh, and kind of the role that that plays in our society and in our uh, children's lives, uh, where they're so um, spending a lot of time on technology and having less face-to-face -face interaction. And there's just, I mean, y y you know what I'm, I mean? Yeah. There's just so much out there. Uh, that kids are exposed to, um, you know, bullying, and now there's cyberbullying, that whole piece. Uh, patients um, are spending more time on their devices and on their screens, uh, and I, I think it's really having an effect on behavior. Yeah, I can't help but think that the rise in patients that we're seeing sort of coincides with social media and Facebook and, you know, all those sites and snapchat and whatnot and it seems like the kids just can't get away from that yeah it's it's a huge problem um you know i it, it's almost with every child that comes in just their kind of their way of life now is the not just the video games but you know the phone and the texting and the social media like you said um snapchatting uh what did I hear recently? I recently heard at a nursing conference. Um, it's not happening unless you're snapping or something oh, like that. Oh, yeah. And, uh, a little catchphrase so there going on. Kind of like uh, if it wasn't documented, it wasn't done. Yeah. Uh, if you didn't Snapchat but it, if you didn't Snapchat yeah. it, it did not it happen. It didn't happen. Um, yeah, um, I, I think just the advancing technology and the amount of time that kids are spending in it. Um, yeah you know, in a way takes them away from their real life. And they're yeah. just not able to properly manage that. And I can't help but think too, the more time they're spending on their devices, the less time they're spending really kind of honing in on their social skills and being social. Mm -hmm. And I think that could be part yeah. of it as well. Well, we all know everybody looks great on, everybody's life is wonderful on Facebook, right? and Instagram and everything else. Everybody's showing us their best life. And this is the same with kids. Like it, they believe what they see, you know, whether it's really true or not. We know that all of, there's plenty of doctored photos out there, you know, or people are saying they're on a beach, but they're actually in their backyard. And, you know, yeah. they look like they're living their best life, but it puts a lot of pressure on kids to want to be like what they're seeing all the time, I think. Yeah, because they feel if they're not doing it, then they're not cool either. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. I wow. Can, so. I can think of another factor too, Doug. When just listening to you all, I also agree that the social media 
you know, you can correlate it with the the rise we're seeing, but also at, like the resources that parents and children have outside of the hospital. I know um, in the emergency room as well as in the inpatient world, we get these patients that we call stuck patients mm -hmm. because there just doesn't seem to be services that they need in out, outside of the hospital. And as a result, children's had, we've had to build a big network inside the hospital of uh, our behavioral health team is growing in leaps and bounds to help those of us that were trained to be medical nurses and surgical nurses right. or emergency nurses. Well, even emergency nurses are not mental health nurses. Exactly. So it's really a very specific skill set to be able to um, help kids that are in a mental health crisis. I agree. Uh, you know, work through that. So we're great at crisis intervention in the emergency department, whether it's a medical problem or a behavioral problem. But then it's really taking it to the next step, and that's a, where there's a gap. So kids are boarding in the ED. All of this is real feels. Like, it feels like there's a lot more kids because there are a lot more kids. The statistics actually are that somewhere around 22% of kids in the U.S. are diagnosed with some kind of a mental health problem or a substance use disorder. So that that's a quarter of, almost a quarter of the population of, of children and adolescents. That's an incredible statistic. And also, we also know from the data that the hospital visits for kids with suicidality or a suicide attempt are up 292% between 2008 and 2015. So that's a lot of visits. I think we feel that every single day in the emergency department, but trying to manage those kids in the ER or the hospital, um, when they're not with their uh, specially trained providers, is taxing. You know, it's taxing on the staff, it's taxing on the institution, on the resources that we have, and it's and there's a downstream effect to the kids because they're not always uh, quickly getting the services that they need. There's a disparity. There aren't, that's another real feel. There are not enough providers for all of the kids that need them. Um, and that's especially true in adolescent psychiatry. Uh, and there are not enough inpatient beds for all of the patients that need higher levels of care. So that's why we see that backlog into the emergency department. And then once we're overflowing, <clears throat> if there's space upstairs in the uh, rest of the hospital, because there's not a bed available, um, they'll, that's where they end up on the inpatient units. So it, it's a struggle for everybody. Yeah, and I think as speaking as a, a nurse that has a medical background and now we're le learning a lot about behavioral health um, and really leaning pretty hard on our behavioral health team for yeah. assistance with um, supporting um, these children inpatient. I, I know a lot of my colleagues um, struggle with the fact when kids are stuck here mm -hmm. that, you know, you see them sometimes getting sicker and sicker. Right. And, you know, if it was an, um, another situation, you know, we can escalate the care up to emergency mm -hmm. department, but we don't have anywhere to place them outside of our inpatient units and in right. the, the, the room, and a lot of times we're imposing some restrictions on them. Um, and I know, like I mentioned, like behavioral health, I can turn this to Doug, I, you know, just in, maybe you can speak to how your service has grown in sure. the past few years. Um, I guess I, I, I do have to admit that I got on my soapbox a little bit about society and technology, um, which I do think is definitely a, a, big, a big contributor, but you made a very great point about the lack of resources. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot, there's not enough, uh, psych resources in general, but for children, absolutely. There just are not enough 
providers, mm-hmm. uh, as you were saying. Um, and that really, that certainly contributes mm-hmm. big. Um, you know, it may be, you may be able to get in to see a therapist, uh, you know, with kind of a short wait for an appointment. Um, but even then you may still have, you know, a waiting list depending on, you know, what your needs are. Um, but to see, you know, if there's medication involved or, you know, there might be medication involved, uh, to try and get uh, a, ch- a provider that specializes in children and adolescents is really difficult. And, and you know, you could be waiting for uh, a long period of time. And in that course of time, if things are not going well, these patients are going to present to the emergency department. So, um, yeah, you end up with the patient and family in crisis. We see parents that have absolutely, struggled. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so, sorry, your question uh, to talk about. Just maybe t- talk a little bit to our listeners about how you've grown the behavioral th- program at our hospital and the support that you've pulled in in the recent years. Sure. Um, so I, I started at the hospital uh, 2014, uh, and I at that point was uh, the second person uh, on the team. Uh, we added about one nurse every year. Uh, for the last five years. Uh, We recently, um, and very excited about it, we recently got approval to add positions to our team. Uh, So we'll be adding uh, six nursing positions and six milieu counselor positions, uh, which is huge. Um, So that's most recent. Uh, We've been able to pull in a couple additional nurses recently uh, you know, moving some, some hours around and getting creative, and that's been helpful. Since then, those nurses have been able to increase their time that they're with us per week, uh, which has been wonderful. Uh, we've added a, a board-certified behavior analyst uh, this past September, which uh, has been a huge addition. Uh, for those who don't know, the behavior analyst uh, is really uh, focused on the function of behavior and why, uh, what is the meaning of this behavior? What is the patient trying to tell us? Um, and then we're better able to provide interventions for that specific behavior. This is really helpful when uh, we have these patients that are exhibiting behavior that's just really challenging. Um, and we find ourselves from the psychiatric nursing perspective, uh, scratching our heads. Uh, you know, and, and you know this because sometimes we just don't know what to do. Even with all of our our experience, uh, you know, some of the behaviors that we're seeing, uh, and so the the other perspective uh, is our behavior analyst uh, Olivia Miller, who has joined us, um, and that's been that's been a great addition. Uh, and so we have these new positions uh, that we're interviewing for now. Uh, and our goal is to begin to provide holiday coverage uh, and 24-7, 24/7 coverage, uh, which is a huge step for us. Uh, so we will, we will be in-house and available to, to help. Yeah, that's some great strategies, the way the hospital has really worked to try to meet the needs of this patient population. I know that in the ER, they've also done a lot of work down there Um, to accommodate not only with staffing and policies and procedures, but also with some facilities Mm -hmm. changes to help with the care of these patients while they're with us in the ER. Kathy, can you speak to that just a little bit? Sure. Uh, Previously, we have um, 
we had four rooms in our department that we could make into a safe room. So um, having behavioral health patients or kids in mental health crisis, it's not a new thing for the emergency department. This is typically the place where they go when the family's having a crisis, so they present to the ER. So we've always had a room. Uh, I've been in the ED for 25 years, so um, you know I can think of the evolution of what was our, our so-called uh, you know, psych room. Um, where before it was just, it was a room with a couple of chairs in it. That was it. It was almost like a little mini tiny table size waiting room. Um, And then it's evolved into examination rooms, full size examination rooms. And since then we've also um, upgraded to add uh, a garage door, which puts all of the medical equipment behind it. Um, And there, thereby making the room safe for the patient. So it's a ligature-free room. Um, now, that's not to say that their kids, kids are very creative. They can find ways to get themselves in trouble, even in a room that is, seems to only be four walls, right? Um, but these are, these are the safest rooms that we have in the department. Over the past few years, we have uh, created more of those rooms. So we had four, now we're up to um, seven. And um, those are, those are good and bad, right? So they provide a safe environment for the patient, but it's also, uh, there's, it's very plain in there. So for the kids, um, they do have a television in there that they can watch and it's enclosed so they can't get at it. Um, but there's not a lot else in there. It's not like a typical inpatient room or there's no playroom in the emergency department. There's nowhere to walk around. We're not a secure unit. Um, our doors are locked for safety purposes, but it's not um, like Beta 5 where they have a secure unit. And we don't even have any windows, so we you don't, can't even tell you the don't difference know. between day and, and night. And it's never nighttime in the ER. That's another challenge of the patients being in the department is that there are kids coming in at all times of the day and night because they're sick. Uh, medical emergencies, trauma patients. So the ED is not really the most conducive place to have a calming, quiet environment for a patient that needs an environment like that. So there are, there are some things that we can do. Um, we do try to cohort the patients together when we can. Uh, and we do have a couple of quieter zones in the department that we try to use. But, um, you know, we, for the rooms... What we're finding, though, often is that the patients outnumber the safe rooms. So we have to prioritize who really needs the safe room in the department. Uh, And then the other patients have to go into a regular examination room. Those rooms are not safe. And what we mean by safe is making them ligature resistant. That's a requirement that we have in the emergency department from the regulatory agencies and the accrediting bodies. We have to make the room ligature resistant. So that means you wouldn't be able to... Uh, have any cords in the room or any, um, say, hooks that you could hang something on. So decreases the risk of um, the patient being able to tie something onto that and then uh, tie it onto themselves and harm themselves. Um, So what we have done is um, we have, in many of our rooms, taken all of the supplies off of the head wall. So it's very, it's minimalist now. We have the monitor. We can remove the cords from the monitor. Uh, we can take the suction off the wall. We leave the oxygen um, gauge on there, but we take everything else off. 
Uh, and then we have a cart, a supply cart. So that we can lock everything in there. That's a secure spot, and we can turn it around so the kids can't get at any additional supplies in the room. Um, other things that we have done is um, we have also extended that safety uh, zone to the bathrooms. So um, studies show that that is a common place where people mm. hurt themselves when they are inpatient um, and they have a suicide attempt or uh, act of self-harm. They will often do it because it's a private area in the bathroom. So we have extended that ligature-free um, area um, to the to a couple of the bathrooms in the department, so kids are safe th in there too. Kathy, I have a question for you. With yep. your rooms, are the bathrooms inside of the safe rooms? Are They're they not? So this is another challenge: is that um, you know there's we do have all single examination rooms in the department, but the bathrooms are all out in the hallways. So when the kids, we have two rooms that are. Um, well, three rooms that have their own bathroom, but those are uh, primarily for isolation patients. So, um, but and we do occasionally use them for the behavioral health patients. But the no, the bathrooms are in the hallway. So when the kids have to go to the bathroom, uh, one of the the safety plan pieces is that um, the patient has to be observed constantly, and that even means while they're in the bathroom. Yeah. So we have to. You, you know, be careful about where we're taking them to the bathroom so that we're not exposing them to or yeah. anybody else to them, right? So, but yeah. we have to keep the door cracked to open a little bit to be able to see them while they're in the restroom. Yeah, we have that challenge up on the, the floors, the mm -hmm. inpatient floors as well. Right. And I think, you know, we've partnered with um, uh, environmental or engineering mm -hmm. um, to help create rooms in the inpatient world as well that are right, safe that rooms. That are safer. And safer. Yeah, they're not perfectly yeah. we safe. We actually, I think, call them uh, upgraded rooms up yeah. in the inpatient <laughs> world. Um, and we've learned from our patients, I think Doug could probably speak to that as well, uh, that you we think we have the perfect safe room, but when you have a, a young person laying in bed 24-7 with not a lot to do, yeah. it's been really interesting how creative they can get. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah. we've had upgraded, upgraded rooms sure. as well. <laughs> um, the, I do have a question for yeah. you in, from the emergency nurse perspective. And one of it is, like, what are you seeing for length of stay for these kids that are coming in? So in you the know, emergency one, of the, room? one of the problems um, with not being able to find uh, placement for kids that need higher level of care is that um, they, what we call board in the ER, uh, so they can stay anywhere from hours to days, uh, and recently we've even had kids for weeks. Um, so that is obviously not ideal, um, but because um, they are not safe to go home um, and there isn't a placement for them, they have to stay somewhere, so they stay with us. Are there, is there any regulations for you know, length of stay in the emergency room. It doesn't sound like it. it there isn't a specific one. We've sort of had this, um, I don't know if it's an unwritten guideline for kids would stay uh, a minimum or once they got past 24 hours in the emergency department, it sort of made them eligible, so to speak, to get an inpatient bed and board there. But as we know, we need all uh, most of the inpatient beds for kids with medical, surgical, you know, post-op. Um, different problems. So th those spaces are not even always available. Mm -hmm. And the, the kids that tend to be 
um, inpatient for long periods of time have other uh, coexisting medical problems that make it even more challenging to place them um, in treatment centers. So, um, yeah, so there, there isn't, as far as I know, I don't know, Doug, if you know any differently, whether there's any, um, you know, limitations on yeah, how not, long a patient can board. I not don't that think I'm so. aware of. Uh, yeah. I think that um, there's been variation, like in the literature, with actually the definition of psychiatric boarding and you know there's been some evidence that there's just no or lack of evidence i should say on a clear definition like what does that mean psychiatric boarding is that after they've been cleared medically or is it after 12 hours or is it after 24 hours mm -hmm. uh you know i was going to say what we're seeing it's another challenge that seems to be growing every year uh where i remember five years ago you know i think that 24 hour mark we would be able to get kids upstairs, mm -hmm. um, patients upstairs yeah. without much of an issue. And then, you know, now we're seeing three days, four days, yeah. uh, five days because the hospital is the so capacity. Full. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So. so, Kathy, you raised a good point earlier. You said emergency nurses are not behavioral health nurses or psych nurses. Yeah. And that struck home with me, obviously, because I'm an ER nurse, but I also feel like the inpatient nurses might feel similarly. Sure. So, Doug, I'm wondering, do you have any tips or any thoughts about how we can help our nurses to take care of these patients when they're in our care, even though we are not typically, you know, the typical psych nurse? Yeah, I, I think... Um nurse is going to need uh, a lot more education and so right now so that they're feeling better prepared because this is not you know something that uh, seems to be temporary it seems like uh, it's a part of behavioral health is now part of um, medical or surgical nursing it's almost a change uh, in our culture it's a culture shift for us yeah, as far is. as providing care to pediatric absolutely. patients absolutely um a big change, a big shift. Uh, I remember when I was in school, uh, I, I had already been working in psychiatry at the time and I was in nursing school and they said, oh, well, you should probably, uh, you know, go get some med surge experience as a nurse. And, you know, if, even if you're, you know, you're going to go into uh, psychiatry, behavioral health. Uh, and I did not. I went right into psychiatry. And uh, my point is, is that now it seems like it's flipped like you know it almost seems like nurses <laughs> should go experience the mm. the behavioral health piece uh, mm. and then come into yeah, medical everywhere. surgical <laughs> nursing um, but uh, we are working on education um, and we're looking at uh, what we currently have right now uh, is a one-hour Moab training which is management of aggressive behavior uh, and that certainly effective five years ago um, but I, I don't think that that is any longer the case. I think the nurses just need more. Yeah. Um, and like we said earlier, behavioral health is, um, you know, it's experience, uh, you know, and you can't, can't read a book and, you know, expect to be able to apply some of this stuff. You actually need the experience of uh, working with patients that are agitated or anxious or sad or um, psychotic. Uh, yeah, all, I, I, these are all um, very challenging mm -hmm. symptoms to to manage if you've never done it before. Uh, so I think our, you know, one of the one of the big things that we're doing 
um, is we've gotten, gotten the okay from the hospital to look at the education we're providing uh, and, and identify a way in which we can provide more better education. So, so we're looking at that currently. In the interim, a lot of our nurses, at least I know in the ER, have gotten hurt in situations mm -hmm. and they really are fearful of their safety. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what can we do until this education happens to bridge that gap to help reassure the nurses who are feeling like their safety is at risk? I think I always think about communication. Um, and you know, if you have a concern to bring it up, um, my team covers the entire hospital. We're happy to be involved way before their is any agitation, um, though I know that you can't always predict it. Um, so I think being aware, like if there's a history of agitation, uh, certainly if the patient is presenting with a behavioral health concern, um, to be aware of that and to communicate um, with colleagues about um, what has been done, how the patient's been doing, uh, how to move forward, kind of that, that nice handoff um, on s some of the things related to behavioral health, um, you know, versus the medical handoff, uh, yeah. which could be difficult for, for some nurses if they're not, if they're not used to handing off, uh, the pieces of the, the behavioral health picture. So what is it that your behavioral health response team does? That's a good question. Um, so when we started, uh, we start, we actually got our early beginnings 10 years ago now. Uh, with uh, one nurse uh, who was um, who had actually come down from our psychiatric unit uh, and just started to provide support on the floors and like I said earlier I was the second um, and at that point we were doing very I mean we were doing some proactive work it was just you know it was it was two of us and, and soon after three uh, it wasn't nearly as busy so we were just, we were doing a little proactive work, but we were really mostly following like the rapid response model where, you know, a rapid response would be called or, um, you know, a behavior code or a security code, mm -hmm. other hospitals might call it. Uh, and we would come and provide support and deescalate the situation and use our expertise to do so. Um, but since over the past five years, we uh, have moved towards a more proactive model. Um, so we're not waiting for the emergencies to happen. We're, we're, we're doing a, a much better job of getting to know our patients better, to do planning around uh, their history and their behavior, what is upsetting for them, what can we best do to help them when they're upset. Um, we're also involved for with patients coming into clinic and coming in for surgeries that are going to be admitted. Uh, we'll call parents at home to do some planning before the patient comes into the hospital so that we're kind of prepared uh, on minute one uh, when they come in, which has been, which has been helpful. Um, so I, I think just that switch of, you know, going from the rapid response to the, the proactive model has been, has been very helpful. I can speak to, you know, being at Children's for a number of years and seeing exact that was a great explanation of we were kind of it was more of a rapid response you were coming to try to um, we already had a crisis and you came to help us put out the fire you know put out the fire literally and um, but with the the B team precautions um, I 
don't know the precautions be precautions be. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I think I've seen a a change with that with people's mindset before because a lot in the inpatient world and I'm sure in the ED as well, uh, you know, children can have a lot of people coming and going from their room. But it's that sign's been helpful for people to stop and make time to uh, talk to the nurse before they just enter the room. Sure. You know, I think when patients are admitted, you know, come into the emergency department or get admitted to the floors, I think um, there's a lot that can be missed working with staff that are more medical minded, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. You know, so they might not just be thinking of some of these things. Uh, and to have somebody who's more behavioral health minded to think about these things and to document them somewhere is helpful. So we have the precautions B, uh, which has been live for like four and a half, five years now. Uh, and we're definitely using that more often where, you know, that's our behavior support plan, uh, which is attached to the letter B in the banner bar, uh, if folks are unaware. Uh, and that just indicates that the patient does have a behavior support plan where, you know, a staff has sat with them and identified, you know, triggers. What are the things that can upset you? Um, what is supportive for you when you're having a difficult time? What can we do for you? What behaviors uh, have you exhibited in the past that might be challenging? So that's all, it's all just having that information, I think, is is big. Uh, and if you don't have that information, is big too. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I just even think of our nursing assessment, admission assessment, and there are questions in there, like as far as, um, you know, the depression screening, Mm-hmm. Um, in about having emotional being treated for emotional issues, but as um, medical nurses, and I don't you got uh, maybe you or Kathy or Denise can speak it from the ED perspective. It's how to ask the questions once the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Like where do we go beyond that? Yeah. Well, it's important to ask the questions. Um, you know, we want to we want to be able to intervene when we know a child is maybe not. There's a lot of kids that come into the emergency department that have these vague somatic symptoms that, uh, you know, they've been, uh, you know, the stomach ache for a really long time, or they have this vague headache, and what it's really masking is an underlying mental health problem. So we want to ask the questions. You know, we want to do the screening questions, and there's uh, universal suicide screening that we do in the emergency department. And that's going to be expanding to the inpatient areas soon. Um, and from there, you know, we get the information. We're looking for a save. There are, there are kids that uh, die by suicide every year that have been either at a hospital or their pediatrician's office or seeking some kind of medical help within the last 12 months of their life. So we want to, to capture those kids that are struggling or are in crisis, but just are not saying anything to anybody. So it's really important that we do uh, that screening and that we, it, it's hard. It's, it's not, um, it's uncomfortable. It feels uncomfortable to ask the questions too. And I think it's, it's really, the, where the adults are the ones that have the problem with it. The kids don't care. Like they, they trust me, they know somebody that has either cut themselves or has tried to kill themselves or is, or has died by suicide. There, there, there are kids, it's happening everywhere. So we're, we as the adults are the ones that struggle with asking those awkward questions. It's not, the kids are, you can ask them, 
so in the past few weeks, have you wished you were dead? And they're like, nah, like, it's no big deal to them. Like they don't, and we've had kids tell us afterwards that have said, that's good that you ask kids that. That's important. So what would you say to nurses who are struggling with asking the questions? I know, you know, we said, well, maybe because we're afraid we're going to get yeah. a yes answer. Right. But I mean, you, you spoke to it a little bit, mm-hmm. but how do we help those nurses who really are struggling to ask those pointed and very blunt questions right. to young patients? And we're yep. talking like 12 years old. Yeah, That's pretty young. Yeah, Actually, the recommendation for the ask suicide questions is 10 and above. That's what it's been tested on. So um, we may, we're going to, we started at 12. We were going to start at 10 and got a lot of pushback from the staff. Like, that is too young. We can't possibly ask somebody that. Guess what? We see kids, look at the kids we're seeing in the hospital. We see them younger than that. So again, we're the ones that have the problem with it. So it's really, um, the the things that I, I tell nurses is that just say it. If you need to lead in with it, this is a little bit awkward. You know, it might sound kind of weird what I'm saying, but you know, our we ask all kids about their feelings, and um, so I have a few questions for you. We've provided scripts that have been a big help. In fact, nurses would walk around with the script with them because they knew they had to ask every single one of their patients that they had to do their initial assessment on. They needed to ask these screening questions, and they would read them. And it just over time gets a little bit easier. And I think when you couple that with all of the other data that's out there about kids that, you know, an act of self-harm is actually a precursor to suicide in adolescence. We have to pay attention to that stuff. So it, once you put all that information together and then you just really practice over time, asking the questions again and again, it actually gets a little bit easier. And what do you say to the parents who are floored that you're going there right. with their kid? Oh, sure. That that was also um, you know a challenge for us, and we have a script for that for something that we could say to the parents, you know. And what we do is we give them that little bit of information that said, you know, suicide is now the second leading cause of death for kids and adolescents and young people in the United States. It used to be the third. Now it's the second. So, um, you know, their, your child's safety, we're not only, we don't only care about their medical uh, well-being, we care about their mental health, and uh, we want to be able to intervene when we can and capitalize on the opportunity that we have when the kids are with us in the hospital. And I know in the ER, they started doing this thing called the behavioral bundle yes. to help standardize the nursing care that these exactly. patients are getting. Yeah. Can you give us a little inside to that? So this is all a part of, uh, ties in with this increased um, volume of patients that we're seeing. And um, it started back, I was part of the evidence-based practice mentorship program here in the um, hospital for the 2018 cohort. And um, my clinical question was about observation of all of these patients. We had uh, sort of a crisis uh, time where there was a really large volume of patients and not enough people to observe them. Once kids screen positive for uh, suicidality, they are, um, they, we go down the pathway and we give them a constant observer. They get one-to-one observation um, as part of the safety plan. So. My question was, 
um, when we didn't have enough observers, we had to start getting creative. We didn't have enough observers for all the kids that needed to be observed. So um, my question was about what is the safest way to watch kids? So, you know, does it put them at, is there more risk of self-harm um, if we use a single constant observer versus other observation modalities? Um, and there's not a lot of evidence out there to point us in any direction. We have a lot of guidelines from the regulatory agencies and the accrediting bodies, um, but we don't have a lot of data. There are no randomized control trials about um, suicidal uh, observation for suicidal patients because you can't say, okay, patient A will get an observer and patient B won't. They're both suicidal. Let's see what happens. Like it's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, it won't pass the IRB. So, so that um, has all of that together has um, just gathered some momentum in the department where we want to standardize the care for these patients because you can find guidelines, but you can't really find. Um, this, uh, a good standardized care plan. So, um, so we have uh, a working group in the ED uh, that has, from quality perspective, have has looked at some of the safety events that have occurred in the ED and all of the uh, reports. Um, and we um, looked at the most common groups. So it had to do with. Uh, patients going into the room, so the room entry. It had to do with their medications. It had to do with the personnel. And it also had to do with the, that time while they were boarding, so all of that monitoring time. So each of those four groups broke up, and we worked really hard over um, the last year uh, in 2019. And what we wanted to do was decrease the number of serious safety events for these patients, and we were fortunate uh, that all of the hard work and all of the um, methods that we created to help uh, care for the patients, we were able to decrease our um, safety events from 1.1 uh, per thousand behavioral health patients down to 0.37 wow, that's um, per 1,000 uh, behavioral health patients. So we took now we took it to the next level, and we've created this behavioral bundle, and this is part of our 2020 strategic plan in the ED, is that um, we are going, we have a package uh, a packet that includes um, all of the the hard work from all of our previous working groups. So we have a family information sheet. One of the things we found is the families did not, um, they weren't getting all this, the information that they needed for what was gonna happen while they were in the emergency department. So there's a family education sheet that they have. We have um, a room entry safety checklist so for the kids that are going into those rooms that are not the safe rooms, we can make them safer. And that is really important because the statistics show that uh, the room entry safety checklist actually makes the patient safer than doing a, a standardized risk assessment. You get all of those dangerous things away from them and that actually makes them safer than somebody coming in and evaluating them and saying, well, they're at low risk, medium risk, high risk. Because we just don't always know whether somebody is gonna act on their, their feelings. They may or may not share those. Um, the other piece that we have is, a um, we call it the green sheet, but it is um, a sheet that tells us a little bit about why the patient's here, and then runs through um, things that we have to do. So once they screen positive for suicide, they have to be uh, searched, and we get all of the potentially um, dangerous items away from the patient. Now, this includes their clothing, um, we have trialed using some uh, 
pajamas that are uh, disposable and those have worked well. Um, so we get them change, have them change into that. We search all of their belongings. We secure those away. We have the family take all of their potentially unsafe items and those go into a locker. That was another piece that, um, that happened was that we were able to uh, purchase some lockers for the parents and they secure their belongings there. Um, and then we make a decision about what kind of observer we need for the patient. You know, is it somebody that's at risk for harming themselves actively? Then we need to have security. Or mm -hmm. is it somebody with sort of passive suicidality that we can have a care companion or one of our clinical assistants sit with them? Um, but another thing um, that we did is we're starting to shift the language. So th the person that is doing the one-to-one -one observation we're trying to get away from calling them a sitter because it, the act of what they're doing is not sitting. Mm -hmm. They're there to observe the patient from a safety standpoint to make sure that they're not going to hurt themselves. So we're trying to shift language using saying things like, this is our safety protocol when parents ask why we're doing all this. This is just part of our safety protocol. Our, um, your child's safety is our number one priority. And um, these are all the things that we have to do. So shifting language about um, safety protocol, constant observe, observer instead of sitter. Um, but what we also do is we round with emergency psychiatry um, twice a day. And we want them to share with us uh, and collaborate with the nurse about what the patient, um, what sort of restrictions we have to have for the patient. Uh, are they able to go for a walk around the unit just to stretch their legs? Um, do, is it okay for them to take a shower? We typically say for the first 24 hours, because we're not really sure like what the patient's crisis uh, is involving, we say no walks and no showers. But then once we're at that point and we know that they're going to be boarding, um, we, we might be able to, um, after evaluation from the psychiatry clinician, uh, determine whether it's safe for them to do that. So twice a day we go through the sheet and make sure that, um, that it's okay that we want to carry on with the same uh, restrictions that we have about bathroom privileges. Um, and um, another big part of it was taking away their phone and electronics. This feeds into the, what we were talking about earlier with the social media. We don't know what is happening. Some kids use their phone as a weapon, and I don't mean like a physical weapon they're going to throw it at us, but they are texting people and saying, see what you did? Because you broke up with me, now I'm in the hospital and I want to kill myself. So they're using it against people, but they're also, um, they're seeing things and, and that we don't know how they're reacting to that. So they have no internet access and they're not supposed to have their phone. Um, so we take those away too. Um, and then the final piece of the, um, the bundle is that we now want to, um, increase, and this is really where our milieu counselors and the behavioral response team uh, partner with us, is uh, we want to know how best the patient copes, like what helps them calm down. Um, and so we have a coping tool in there, and we also have some um, de-escalation strategies for the staff, and that can include just environmental things like decreasing the sound in the room, decreasing the lights in the room, you know, decreasing the stimulation in the room itself to ways that we interact with the patient and, you know, other things that we can do to intervene to prevent the patient from escalating. So we've been doing this since January 6th, and um, 
it's it's you know it's uh, we're taking baby steps, but people are really happy to have this standardized approach. It makes it easier because when we're inconsistent with the way we approach the care with the patients, they number one the patients are like like we said earlier with the room when they're sitting in that room all by themselves, they figure out ways to get themselves in trouble. Um, they can see um, that they take advantage of that. Um, inconsistency if mm -hmm. if nurse the day nurse says one thing and the night nurse says another and the rules are different and then the another day nurse comes in the next day and says well I've been doing this for 12 hours the night nurse said it was okay you know that it doesn't help us any and it doesn't help the patient any either so um, so for us to be able to say well this is the protocol and um, this is the the best way to help keep the patient safe and we all do it together. We have a like mindset. We have a united front in caring for the patients. That is also another thing that uh, you know I found in the data is that it's really important for the staff to have a united front when they're approaching care to the patients. So, um, so we're really looking forward to capturing more data on this. But our initial, just in the first couple of weeks, um, you know, we're we've. Our goal was to have 70% of the patients have the bundle initiated. Our, in the first couple of weeks, we had 78%. So we were happy to see that. And also, we did a survey for the nurses to make sure that it's easy to use, that they, have, they think they have all the information in there that they need, um, and it's readily available to them. 93% of the nurses say, yes, it's, it's easy to use, and it has all the information that I need in it. So we're just going to keep going from there and just being uh, sort of like with asking the questions. The more you do it, the easier it gets. So we're just going to plug on and just uh, we know that the ultimate goal is that this is a way that we can keep our patients that are in crisis safe. So, Kathy, that plan is pretty comprehensive. It sounds like, you know, a lot of work went into it. It did. It was and, a big group. Yeah. And I'm wondering, Doug, how well does the work that the ER has been doing carry over into the inpatient setting when the patient gets admitted or leaves the ER? Yeah. Some of the... Um, th th there was some precursor work uh, that's been going on for a few years that I think... Uh, informed what is going on in the ED. Uh, I, I think the one the one thing I think of is our room safety forum, which is is really tailored to the the medical room, uh, and that is you know how can we best remove items uh, from the room to to allow this patient to be in a safe place, uh, much like they do in the ED. I think when the ED looked at it, they they needed a more uh, custom list for the ED rooms just because they're a little bit different and we wanted things to be as clear as possible. So I think that is one of the things that kind of informed uh, the ED work as well as, um, you know, some of the behavior plan that behavior planning that we do uh, is informing, you know, the coping tool. And, and you know, so they kind of go hand in hand. Um, you know, I, I think the work that the bundle work is is wonderful uh, and I, I would like to see at some point you know how it does translate up to the units um, you know because ultimately we all have to do the same things no matter where the patients are to make sure we keep them safe so that bundle is amazing yeah there's and I brought it with me too if you wanted to see it so we have a nursing <laughs> task list that helps us 
prioritize the care and do the most important things in the what we call the golden hour. So, in the, and that ties into what we do um, in the emergency department with trauma patients. Uh, when patients come in with some sort of a traumatic injury, uh, they have this, what we call the golden hour, that's sort of the hour that you have to capitalize on to stabilize the patient uh, and recognize the most serious um, problems. So we have um, this nursing task list is super helpful, and this came out of the group that Denise worked on, um, where we prioritize uh, the tasks for the nurses, because it's a lot. It's, it's very comprehensive, but it's very intensive. So uh, it, it just lists through every, before the patient gets into the room, you clear the room of potentially unsafe items and make sure the garage door is down if you're in one of those rooms. And then within the first hour, it runs through everything that you wanna do to have them get changed, do the patient search, um, search the belongings and secure them, take away the phone and electronics, uh, go over the family education sheet with the family so they know what to expect during their stay. Um, discuss the restraint policy if it's something for, not every child has been restrained before and that is, we don't want to restrain kids. Uh, we want to utilize our de-escalation techniques and strategies mm -hmm. to not get to that point. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, but we want the, to, the information from the family um, you know, is this, has the child ever been restrained before? What were the triggers? And obviously we want to avoid those. Um, and then we want to make sure we complete the medication history. There's some medical screening stuff that we have to do, have the parents uh, lock up their items. Um, and then when it's, when this has been a, a little bit of a challenge and we've gotten some feedback from the nurses that it, it's hard sometimes to get all of that done in the first hour, especially when you have an oppositional and defiant adolescent, if you can imagine that. Um, you know, <laughs> kids little. baseline or you know, adolescents baseline <clears throat> are oppositional and defiant with their parents, but when they're in a mental health crisis, it is, you know, amped up a bit. So they are not taking, they will draw a line in their sand, like I'll give you this, uh, it's like a negotiation. I'll give you my shoes, but you're not getting my sweatshirt, you know. And then we have to go through this whole thing. <laughs> of, we All right, both? we're going to give, yeah, we, we will, we'll get there. So it's probably not going to happen the first hour, but we'll get there. So we got to, you know, give, we utilize our strategies and our, our uh, colleagues from the behavioral response team to help us uh, negotiate some of that. But um, we really... Um, use this as a guideline to make the patients as safe as possible. So, so is it something that would potentially be able to be shared with inpatient? We we hope so. You yeah. know, we're we're going to do the work right now and and sort through everything and collect some data and see how it goes. And then, um, you know, we who knows? It may be coming to an inpatient unit near you. It's very uh, promising to listen to the <laughs> yeah. work on twofolds. That you know, listening to the work that you're doing down um, in the emergency room on this behavioral bundle just to literally in implement it a month ago right. and see the results. Yeah. And that kind of segues and partners with um, the work Doug's team's doing and their ability uh, moving forward to have um, presence in-house 24-7. Yeah. Because yes. I, I was thinking that too. I know the admission process mm -hmm. and meanwhile staff have other patients. Right. There's so many interruptions exactly. when you're yeah. in the middle of admitting a patient, yep. mm -hmm. it would be wonderful like if we had our yeah. behavioral health uh, par to partner with the nursing staff yep. um, and everybody be on the same page. Yeah, and, and like I said, if, 
if there's consistency through the whole organization, it it's less options for the patient to have to uh, deal with, right? If they know this is what's going to happen, this is the plan, and it's going to be the same in the ER as it is in inpatient, and then it carries on when they go to um, a higher level of care, you know, inpatient uh, psychiatry, if that's where they end up. And the folks from the ED have uh, kindly kept me uh, involved in all the the bundle planning. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I've kind of had a sense of listening to, you know, what's going to work for the folks in the ED. And then, you know, just, you know, adding adding my thoughts as I try to process how could this work translate to, you know, the rest of the the hospital. Well, Doug's perspective Uh, has been invaluable to us because he can look at it you know, sometimes you get so into what you're doing, you can't see. So he has a, a great perspective and also his, with his background, uh, you know, we respect that so much and respect his opinion. So everything that he's done to help us has been amazing. You. You're welcome. Well, I want to thank you, Kathy and Doug, for both bringing your expertise to the table today. I'm just wondering, is there one take-home message that you might want our listeners to leave with today or perhaps to wait until our next podcast? Mm. Part two, um, I think just to try to, um, you have to kind of center yourself before you go into to communicate with the patients and interact with the patients sometimes. So taking that moment to just take a deep breath and try to keep in mind that we're here to help keep you safe. Um, I think that mantra of, of when the kids constantly hear that, because they they come from such traumatic backgrounds a lot of times that they have to know that we're here for them, that we're here to help keep them safe. So knowing that that's the underlying goal of everything that we're doing, um, you know, that the patient safety is our number one priority, that is, that would be my take home message for everybody. Great, Doug? Uh, I think mine is that these kids are here um, and they, are going to continue coming uh, to Boston Children's Hospital to get uh, the best care possible. And I think that we need to just work together um, to give them our best care. Uh, And I know very much that it can be very challenging and times frustrating and uh, taking a toll, uh, especially to to folks that don't have the experience working with these kids. Uh, But that's really when we need to to work together and uh, to figure it out the best that we the best that we can, um, you know, to make sure they're safe and, and comfortable and well cared for. Uh, in that, I would say that though we are the behavioral response team, uh, I really look at us as a behavioral support team. Uh, so I always say, call us as early as possible. Like we are the psychiatric nurses on call. Uh, you know our phone numbers and our pager numbers, get in touch. And even if it's a two or three minute question, you know, like, hey, this is something that came up. I just have a quick question. It's totally reasonable. Um, we would rather be uh, involved early and maybe even over-involved than involved too late or not at all. So great. That makes a lot of a sense. Call. Great. Well, thank you, guys. Well, thank That's you. a wrap. It's great to be we here. We hope yeah. you'll join us again. Thank you.